and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And on the other line, strolling out on stage to the song Pony, it's our guest, Jordan Snyder. Jordan, I you were one of the very first guests on this podcast. It's been a while since you've been on. How how are you doing? You know, you're my favorite person to um, talk about Steven Soderbergh with every three years, Jesse. Mm. <laughs> yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, yeah, so as you kind of hinted, we're making a full-on Steven Soderbergh episode because Valentine's Day weekend sees the return of the Magic Mike series, which I, I don't know that many of us back in the early 2010s would have thought that this was going to become a, a, a movie trilogy. We got success. asses in the seats. Yeah. Um, and I figured it was a good time to talk about one of the more uh, eclectic uh, careers of uh, you and I's lifetime growing up watching yes. movies. Um, certainly one of the most like prolific filmmakers to be making movies during during our time on this planet. Um, I first want to pose to you like what I know Steven Soderbergh is is a is a favorite of yours. What is it about his aesthetic, his films that really sort of uh, grabs your attention? Um, well, the first ones that I remember seeing growing up were like the Oceans films. So it was just like right out of the gate, like, holy shit, this is so cool. Like uh, the heist aspect of it, um, that just seems like something that he's a fan of because he's done it multiple times. And I'm a fan of it. Just like cool people being smart and witty, like getting one over on some uh, really hammy villains. It's just like something that I really gravitated to for whatever reason. Um, So and he just seems like the kind of guy, like when you look at his filmography, where it's just like, how I don't know how he was able to like get some of this stuff made, but it's just like, it's like I'm really interested in, in this really specific niche topic. I'm going to make a movie about it. And it just seems to happen to work out for him every time. Yeah, I think you kind of pointed to two things that I sort of find interesting about him. He He seems very omnivorous in the kinds of projects he'll take on. You know, he's worked in just about any kind of genre he's done really big budget movies he's done very very tiny small budget movies he seems to be constantly throughout his career shifting between doing these like very pop crowd pleasing movie star driven pictures as well as sort of like more experimental kind of art house indie stuff um and i think as far kind of getting to the ocean stuff that you mentioned which i i think for both of us, probably Ocean's Eleven is is. W- w- am I mistaken that that's probably your favorite too? Of, oh yeah, of... absolutely. I think you, you can't really top it. But like the other ones are still high up there for me. I almost try to treat the trilogy as a whole sometimes, just because I, I feel weird like putting <laughs> right. so many Ocean's movies like in, in a top five spot. You know? Yeah, three is maybe the one that like I don't love quite as much as like the first two. Um, I think you and I are definitely in the hive of people that's like Ocean's Twelve is very very underrated. Um, yeah, for sure. That one definitely like very negative reviews when it first came out in the mid two thousands. Um, Ocean oh thirteen is the one that I think the last time I saw it that feels like 
Okay, so this one isn't even a heist movie. It's just them like <laughs> pulling pranks on Al Pacino's characters. Yeah, it's this, the Pacino like... bump. So that's that's right, what it's got right. going for it too. But I I think the the Ocean's movies kind of nail what I think is so great about his kind of more quote unquote pop movies, which is he really understands movie stars. He really is also fascinated with process, which I think is yeah. why he keeps returning to heist movies so often throughout his career is you know the minutia of like how does someone put a plan together i think yeah. in talking about like the magic mike movies which he's been very involved in and has now directed two of them um you know he's clearly very interested in kind of like the specifics of dance choreography and just sort of like people who are just like professionals at their job and are really really good at doing a very specific thing is something that i i kind of have noticed throughout all of his movies yeah but he never like gets so niche or so specific or so focused on the details that it's like tedious he like knows just the right amount to show of the process so that's like what i love about it as well because to pull off like a the casino heist there's like a lot of stuff that goes into a lot of steps so it would i feel like it would be easy to get bogged down in the details and something like that and he's just like finds a way to effortlessly flow through it yeah it's simultaneously like paying attention to all those like minute little steps while also kind of like I probably could not recount <laughs> the specifics of all the heists in the ocean movies. And that's kind of not the point. Yeah. It's sort of also the feeling under- it gives you <laughs> right. It's also understanding that it's just as much about the like chemistry between all of these different movie stars. And I think him, he's one of the great, I think directors in at least in you and I's lifetime of really being able to take very famous movie stars and like know exactly what, what it is about them that's interesting and captivating to people and just like zoning in on that in a movie. And it works with George Clooney with Julia Roberts. It works with Channing Tatum in the magic Mike movies. I I, I don't think it's any uh, surprise at all that that movie, that first movie I think was kind of the thing that even Gina him... Carano is able to work <laughs> with. Him. Yeah, now that's kind of <laughs> what a, what a, what a, what a fall from grace woman was making Steven Soderbergh movies and star Wars stuff. And now she's doing stuff with Ben Shapiro. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he getting back to like the Channing Tatum thing, like that movie kind of takes Channing Tatum from this like hunky guy who's like in rom-coms and like the step up movies to all of a sudden, like a list movie star and Soderbergh, like, totally knowing like all right what is it what is it about this guy that makes him captivating to watch on screen and how can i like really dial into the essence of that uh, in a performance um i i just think his ability to do that with with so many of our or what we think of as like tabloidy really big famous people is kind of unparalleled even even someone like I mean, has Jennifer Lopez, other than maybe Hustlers, been better in a movie ever than in Out of Sight with George Clooney? And I mean, exactly. It's it, that's how long it's taken for uh, her to have that type of feeling again. I I think I I just can't wait until, or I just I hope that he and Clooney find some way to get back together again because every time they're working together is when 
and when he peaked in my opinion yeah yeah he definitely understands i think a kind of like cool carrie grantness about george clooney um that uh, you know it's 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 funny a few years ago like looked over george clooney's like imdb and was like oh there's not as many like big fame like there's not as many kind of iconic movies in here as you might think but i i think for like people like you and i that were just like every time oceans 11 is on tv we're just like firing it up on on a saturday like george clooney is like one of the seminal movie stars of of our adolescence um like his his collaborations with the coens are also like way up there for me so yeah but even then i feel like what the coens get out of him is like a doofus like a pretty boy that's also like kind of a moron um but i think like soderbergh gets something that's like charming and cool about him um and where he he just feels like the most kind of like confident handsome man in in the room um let's let's talk about about magic mike um as as a series and then we'll kind of dive into the larger soderbergh uh filmography um what what is kind of your relationship with this series um specifically with the first movie that came out gosh it's been over 10 years at this point i mean it was 2012 i believe that movie came out with i was i was i was in high school when that movie came out Mm -hmm. i was like yeah just on the cusp of graduation i and i definitely so um i saw it in a sort of uh asynchronous soderbergian cut up way so i saw the sequel first years ago Mm. so i started with magic mike xxl um did not care for it. I uh, haven't revisited it since then. Um, maybe I would get more out of it now because I uh, just recently this week caught up on uh, Magic Mike. And I definitely uh, enjoy it. It's not one of my favorite Soderbergs, but I mean, it does have a lot of the stuff that I like from him. And I feel like um, even the Cody Horn like romance thing works for me on some weird level even yeah. though that i don't know i feel like there's not a lot of there there when when you really boil it down but he he you know it's soderbergh he makes it work yeah it's kind of uh an interesting trojan horse movie because you know it it is this sort of like I almost think of it as the more pop movie star friendly version of something like the girlfriend experience that he did of like it, this, this movie, this very sexy movie that is actually about like commerce and about uh, capitalism and about the ways people sort of like yeah. uh, the sort of transactional nature of kind of like people sort of giving their bodies over to to another um <laughs> girlfriend experience for anyone have you ever seen that one no it's, no, it, no i haven't seen that one but i was just gonna say like <laughs> when we're talking about the just eclectic nature of his filmography and the eclectic nature of like performers that he's worked with and all all like strata so that's just another example i feel like yeah i mean it's it's this it's not totally successful and i almost feel like i we'll get into this when we talk about his larger filmography a little bit. I I think a lot of his quote unquote art house movies, I sort of watch and I'm like kind of chin stroking, like interesting experiment, but like don't really enjoy them. And so I almost feel like magic Mike is the more 
successful version of that because I I just enjoy kind of pop Steven Soderbergh more. But essentially, that movie being about uh, an an escort, but is you know it's actually about capitalism and as I said, sort of uh, transactional relationships and about commerce and but sort of funneling that through this kind of sexual allegory. Um, but it's actually a pretty like dry movie i i found when i watched it for the first time a couple years ago um and magic mike has this sort of like fun infectious energy of of it and you do get you know it it has all of these all the the things an audience wanting to go see like a male stripper movie with like channing tatum and like matthew mcconaughey would would have and it has this kind of fun rom-com element at at the center of it um but you know it it is kind of this post 2008 movie about like people struggling to make it in america and who have been kind of like beaten down by capitalism and are just trying to make ends meet but also like finding that the sort of the sort of transactional uh relationship they have with their bodies and other people is a way to kind of like ascend higher and and obtain capital so it's it is (laughs) it is this kind of like it both has the kind of like party movie star sort of fizz to it but it's also a movie that has all these interesting kind of ideas baked into it and i i think the first time i saw it was not when it came out because i was probably like a bit of a narrow-minded teenager that was (laughs) just like i'm not going to be the person going to go see uh magic mike um but you know watching it for the first time later on in college i think around the time the the second one was coming out and just sort of being like oh this is a way more interesting and kind of nuanced movie than i was necessarily expecting um and i actually do quite like the second one um i would be fascinated what your thoughts would be revisiting it but it it is like i remember when that movie came out the sort of joke about it was like magic mike xxl is the movie that people thought they were going to go see when they went and saw magic mike like (laughs) it basically just is this kind of like road movie with channing tatum and this cast of other characters uh in in the movie kind of like as i said going on this this road trip and that just sort of being this kind of like vessel for having all of these like very well choreographed dance sequences in it it's basically just a movie that is like a string of dance set pieces in it there's really like not that much of a plot um i have to say i kind of was disappointed by the the most recent one um sad yeah, I know. And and I was really excited because it was Soderbergh hopping back in the director's chair. He didn't direct the second one. That one was directed by uh, Gregory Jacobs, although um, Soderbergh very involved in that one. I think he edited the movie and he served as the DP on the yeah. movie. So still very involved. Um, but to me, this new one, it has not either the kind of nuanced character stuff of the first movie while also it doesn't quite have the same kind of like spark and chemistry and energy that I think makes the second one, even if it's not as deep kind of still like kind of a fun party movie. Um, Essentially this one, 
uh, <laughs> set after the pandemic. Mike is down on his luck again. Um, still damn playing. It, Mike. All- yeah, poor, poor damn Mike uh, <laughs> is <laughs> working as a bartender at this party uh, th- thrown by this uh, millionaire or probably even billionaire divorcee played by uh, Selma Hayek. Yeah. And um, she finds out through some other people at the party that Mike's Mike's good at something a little bit more than pouring drinks. And <laughs> there is this very steamy, very heavily choreographed um, lap dance sequence that almost, I would say, devolves into like, it is basically this like, long heavily choreographed sex sequence in which like for the most part everyone's clothes are still on and there's no like actual like is pony playing no ponies (laughs) but pony does come up at another point in the movie is it sad and slowed down and reverbed (laughs) no it's it's not (laughs) um and so after this 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 kind of uh wild night they have together she tells him uh hey you should come back to london with me where i live and i'm in the middle of separating from my husband i've inherited this theater that is playing kind of night after night this very stuffy like british period piece and as part part uh middle finger to her ex-husband part kind of wanting to just sort of like give give the women of London the same experience she had in that, that steamy tamp night in Tampa. Um, she makes Mike the director of, of this theater and, and gets him to asks him to put on this sort of, uh, elaborate dance strip show. Um, and so most of the movie kind of is this like, backstage drama of Selma Hayek and Channing Tatum trying to put on this show while at the same time kind of falling in love with each other. Um, you know, it's it's got, as I said, like a couple great quote-unquote dance sequences. Um, there, there's that one that I, I mentioned that kind of kickstarts the movie with him in Selma Hayek's mansion. Um, and then there's there's another one that you you maybe have seen clips of in in the the previews that is let's just say very very wet <laughs> it has to deal with rain falling down on the on the stage and is is Channing Tatum in this other ballerina and it's just this like incredibly physical like incredibly hot dance sequence that kind of similar to the Selma Hayek uh scene earlier in the movie is is kind of this it's interesting uh, almost feeling like Soderbergh being like, how can I basically do a sex scene where like a very visceral sex scene where people are not actually having sex and they have their clothes on. Do you Um, think that was the impetus for the entire movie? Like why did he even make the film in the first place? Does it feel necessary in any way? Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read some interesting kind of meta breakdowns of this movie there. You know, there is, this aspect to the Channing Tatum Selma Hayek relationship that is kind of like a director producer relationship. Um, apparently from what I've heard that Soderbergh was kind of inspired to come back and do a third one with Channing Tatum after seeing, I guess there's a magic Mike stage show. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I can't remember if it's quite like a Broadway show or something like that, but, 
but saw that and saw the kind of like energy of that world or that 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 film on stage and then like wanted to make a inspired movie. by fanfic <laughs> right wanted to make a movie about essentially someone trying to put on the stage for put on that stage show in like a very meta way if that makes sense okay. um as i said i think my kind of two big problems with the movie or really it's kind of three problems i think as incredibly attractive as Selma Hayek and Channing Tatum are, I cannot say they have the best chemistry in the world. Yeah. And maybe that's also too, because like their parts both feel kind of underwritten. And so there's aspects of this movie that, that there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of there, there other mm -hmm. than two very beautiful movie stars. Um, and so there's even not like, like I think he's got more chemistry with like Cody Horn in the first movie. <laughs> believe we, it or not, do we get he... a cameo? <laughs> uh, kind of briefly <laughs> in like a montage. Um, which remind me afterwards, we don't have time to get into it onto the on the pod. But the sort of bizarre circumstances by which I I I saw um this this new movie, and I think it also suffers a little bit in not having kind of the wider ensemble of characters that are in the first two movies. They sort of like a couple of them briefly like appear in a zoom call at one point, but most of the movie is just like Channing Tatum and Selma Hayek. And then <laughs> the sort of new cast of dancers that they bring in, you know, it's not these necessarily like actors that are able to sort of like bring in kind of all this personality and chemistry to the movie they're they just sort of seem like abercrombie models who can dance um and they're you know not, if that's setting what you're them up for the next like series of magic mike movies no i don't <laughs> mean if that's what you're there for the movie to see like i'm there were plenty of women in my screening that i'm sure like had a fun time just watching like really ripped dudes with their shirts off but i i yeah. was missing even even the second movie which is kind of just like look we're not don't take this too seriously like this is a big party movie that's just like really jack dudes like doing elaborate dance sequences with their shirts off but even then you had kind of this fun ensemble of people who could kind of bounce off each other in terms of personalities and there's none of that here so that this this one i think kind of lacks both the depth of the first one while lacking a lot of the kind of fun energy of the second one even if it does have i think a couple really uh expertly choreographed dance sequences in it yeah getting some hunky dudes on screen is important we do need that um so let's talk about uh soderbergh kind of as a whole um i think obviously the best place to start with is sex lies and videotape his 1989 film which is kind of a revolutionary independent film i mean not Obviously not the the first quote unquote like indie movie that would be stupid to say, but right. really kind of I think like the movie but that people kicks, sort of say it. <laughs> people sort of say I think they sort of say it because it it really is the movie that I think kind of kicks off the like Miramax era like '90s boom of like studios realizing like oh we can really turn a profit on independent small independent films. Um. I'm curious, like, what your thoughts on that one are, like, all these years later, because it's it's obviously is this movie of his that is so influential in kind of the history of cinema and and was such so such a revelation when it came out. But 
I'm I'm curious to you, does it kind of hold sort of the same weight decades later? Yeah, I mean, I definitely uh, love it, but it's an, another one where like the I don't remember like the beat by beat as much as it is the feeling of it and the vibe of it. And I just remember being both creeped out by James Spader, um, <laughs> but also just like he does have this weird magneticism to him where <laughs> like even when he was in the office for a brief stint, like I hated him at first. And like as time has passed, I've grown to love him. So he's just had that all along, I guess. But I just also have like such a huge crush on Andy McDowell as well that those like her sort of innocence combined with his creepiness just sort of does something for me i don't know yeah it, it's it's also kind of an interesting comparison point to to our magic mike conversation in that it is it is a sort of like on the surface sexual movie that there's not really sex in yeah um you know, it is a but it is much more like a movie about people having very frank conversations about sex as opposed to like really seeing like graphic intercourse on screen um it's a movie i like i think i've truthfully only ever seen it once i think i saw it in college and um it's not one of the soderbergh movies that i've revisited over the years um and i think when i watched it was like this is good and i can see how like you're coming out of the 80s and you see something like this and it's it's a bit like holy shit like what 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 is this and like i i didn't know you could do this in a movie um but obviously i think like you and i are people that have probably like consumed so much of the movies that have been influenced by this over the decades so maybe like it doesn't quite have that same sort of explosive power for yeah. pe- as as people who probably saw, saw like it parodies and stuff before we actually saw it yeah yeah <laughs> so i i think it's weird to think that Soderbergh is such a, an important figure in this kind of like 90s Gen X wave of filmmakers because his 90s are actually like not really that that hot. Not until like, the end, yeah. <laughs> like he kind of, I feel like, spends most of the decade trying to be this kind of art house auteur and none of these projects really land Um you know, I, I don't know whether you've seen there's Kafka, which is kind of his ambitious sort of uh, I don't even really know how to describe it. It's it's kind of a like fascist dystopian <laughs> noir um, that is like looks cool, but is is kind of dull and doesn't really like come together in the way you you kind of want it to. There's Schizopolis, which he stars in and is interesting, but like also not really a movie you necessarily want to rewatch over and over again. He does this like Spalding Gray uh spoken word documentary called Gray's Anatomy yeah. um that's sort of an adaptation of one of his like monologues um there's this movie The Underneath that Soderbergh himself that's has been the only very... one of those I've seen so far and that's another one where it's just like whoop gone from my memory <laughs> yeah I purposely avoided it for years and years because it's a movie that kind of like he doesn't seem to like when people have brought <laughs> right. it up in interviews i i purposely fired it up a couple nights ago um and it's quite bad i i can't say <laughs> i re- it's 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 interesting because it's a it is a heist movie 
Um, but it is, I think, much more serious and much more kind of... It doesn't have, like, the pop in the sizzle of something like Ocean's Eleven or an Out of Sight. Um, yeah. So, I, I don't know. That's It really isn't until Out of Sight in 98 that I feel like he kind of... Which he sort of talks about all these years later as, like, that was, like, a director for hire project for him of him being, like okay, I haven't quite cut it as, like, the art house indie darling. I Which is just... crazy, because it sort of defined him in certain ways. Right, In really yeah. important ways. Um, King of the Hill is another one from, from this kind of time period. I don't know if you've seen... That one I know has nope. its defenders. Um, I think it's okay. You know, it's... Yeah, we'll cross it off eventually, but... Kind of a coming <laughs> yeah, they of don't, age They don't have story. that draw that a lot of his later stuff does. Yeah, like some of these like Schizopolis and, you know, King of the Hill, I think have like some interesting stuff in them, but they're just, they're not like very fun movies to watch. They're sort of, as I said earlier, you kind of like watch them kind of stroking your chin a little bit of like, this has some interesting ideas or some like great craft to it, but there's, it's, it's missing an energy. And, and I think that energy really gets there and out of sight and i think that kicks off kind of this great run he has in the late 90s and and early 2000s and i'll kind of tee you up here in in a second for what you think of of this run but you know he has that movie 98 99 he has the limey which i'm personally a a big fan of and is kind of this like cool like unpretentious b-movie revenge thriller but he's doing all these like really cool like experimental editing techniques in it um you know he kind of has his two big prestige movies in 2000 with traffic and aaron brockovich 2001 does oceans 11 um you know kind of ending this era um it's a bomb but i think notable to bring up his remake of solaris which um, I think it's yeah. actually pretty good. Like, you know, I'm not someone who's like in love with the Tarkovsky version of it. So I'm not one of those people that like saw the Soderbergh version. And was Neither like, oh, am I. How, how could he? <laughs> but yeah, I was still like, uh, that was another one where I was, I just didn't understand his desire to do that. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's his one, or I haven't seen good German. I was gonna say that was his one Clooney flop for me. Oh yeah, good. I mean, good. Ger- good German's bad. I <laughs> another one of those where it's like, oh, interesting idea for you to make something that aesthetically is very much like an old, like classic Hollywood movie in the vein of something like Casablanca, but it's like very hard R rated. Um, would not would not say a movie that that really works at all. Um, uh, but what what do you think of this kind of like? period from 98 to you know if we want to end at solaris in 2002 of him doing kind of bigger more movie star driven movies what do you what do you think it is about that collection that that kind of really brings him to the forefront and should mention like he wins best director for traffic um yeah uh traffic and aaron brockovich both nominated for best picture i believe that year which is one of my favorite pieces of trivia to whip out um but it's looking at his early run and the list of films that you mentioned that I, I can't imagine any of those being financial hits by any sh- stretch. I mean, I don't know, but 
I have to imagine when he gets to the success of Out of Sight that it's maybe like a, a kick in the pants that he needed to like really prove himself in a way, or he feels a need to prove himself. He's like striking while the iron's hot. And from Out of Sight, that's one that I'm so excited to rewatch because I remember loving it the first time. And it's got all the elements of his films that I love. The Limey, I didn't love when I first watched it, and that's one that has sort of, uh, as it's marinated in my mind, has I've grown fonder of it over time. And it's like certain scenes uh, just stick out, and I'll have to like go to YouTube and look them up every now and then. Like there's this uh, Terrence uh, Terrence Stamp, right? Is that yeah, yeah, yeah? There's this Terrence Stamp monologue where it's like jump cut in so many weird different ways. Yeah, um, and what he's saying is like so incomprehensible to follow. And it's got like a great Bill Duke moment at the end, but it's just like uh, even though I wasn't so hot on the movie, it's weird that his like stylistic sensibilities have caused that to just be etched in my brain, and then I have to look it up. Aaron Brockovich is another one that I um, only watched recently because I I knew that I was gonna love it. So like uh, for some reason it just wasn't like super pressing for me, but it's got all the elements that I was talking about before of people being smart and getting one up on the bad guys. And I think this might be his best example of that type of film. Um, I really, really loved it. Then traffic is another one that I I need to revisit, but I mean, that sort of, I feel like I might be colder on it, revisiting it now. I, I I don't know what makes me say that, but just like, because I I was in high school, yeah, I feel kind of the same way. I I saw it when I was in high school and I really liked it and I have not seen it since. Um and I I weirdly have this I'm curious how much it would hold up cuz I have talked to some people that have said that it doesn't really hold up and I know it is also like part of that kind of very specific like t- 2000s trend of like these ensemble quote-unquote issue movies that would have like all of these varying uh intercutting plot lines that would like zig and zag across each other and would be like here's here you know other stuff i think of like this like Babel or syriana like here here are these sort of like global looks at kind of the one huge issue and we're going to get a bunch of movie stars to play different people in all of these different plot lines and are going to zig and zag um i i i i really want to rewatch that one because my memory of it is liking it but also i don't know if i would see it again that i was curious to ask you if when the last time you'd seen that one is because i i wonder if now in a fresher eyes i'd be like oh some of this is a little dated and and either it's like aesthetic or like the ideas it has about like the war on drugs and stuff right and people like all you see nowadays is just people using the uh like color grade (laughs) (laughs) as examples of like using yellow for mexico and that sort of thing which when he did it like in 2000 people were like oh wow so interesting (laughs) like all the dc stuff is in blue and as you said like all the mexico sequences are in have the yellow tint over them but now that's just like Everyone does that in, in in tons of movies, and now it's a problem. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah. I think something else that's important to bring up about this era, and I think you know, the Limey is sort of the best example of this. But I think you even see it in stuff like Out of Sight and Ocean's Eleven is 
he's bringing some of these kind of experimental ideas he learns and sort of tries to play around with in kind of the art house world, but he is applying them to to as we said more commercial sort of mainstream movies and not in a way that sort of like makes them seem pretentious or or in a way of that he's sort of like thumbing his nose or like i'm elevating this material it's just a way of him finding kind of these fresh new ways to sort of visually give you information on screen Mm -hmm. you know you talking about sort of the limey has all of these sequences where you're like hearing a character give a monologue but then you're seeing like a montage of something that's going to happen like hours into the future or something like that and him kind of finding ways to compress time and even sort of playing around with that aspect and disorienting you as a viewer into like so where am i in time and like what's going on and then you realizing oh shoot i'm actually like hours ahead and this has already happened or something like that or this happened hours earlier and i didn't even realize and this explains that and so on and so forth um i i i think that's part of what makes aside from him really nailing the essence of a lot of these movie stars he's working with is kind of what gives these movies that have very familiar tropes sort of this extra kick and this extra juice to them yeah and i think his his um editor's background um sort of gives him like uh, a salvagers mentality where like if something doesn't work uh you can fix it in editing or you can find things in editing and i think that's pretty clear in a lot of his work that sometimes that's the case he's been pretty blunt about that uh or blatant about that with the limey Mm -hmm. um and so i think it is really interesting to see how that i guess uh penchant or penchant for playing around in the in the editing room sort of leads to these things that we we sort of identify as stylistic flourishes but <laughs> might just be a result of might not always be so deliberate might be a result of trying to find something trying to fix something i yeah. think that's really fascinating with him as well kind of happy accidents as, yes. as as it were um so i i think kind of as we move past that that period um you know i think he he goes back into more of sort of an art house mold you know the oceans trilogy which we kind of talked about kind of becomes this thing he can kind of return to when he needs a hit um but you know is playing around doing stuff like bubble which is um i can't say a movie i like but is kind of an interesting experiment of him like can i make a small little movie with like non-professional actors sort kind of what someone like sean baker i think does more successfully this is soderbergh kind of playing around with something like that um full frontal which might be my least favorite movie of his is like this big ensemble hollywood comedy with all these kind of like intersecting plot lines um that's all kind of shot on like low-grade video cameras and and stuff um not I would I would say not a very successful uh, <laughs> movie. Truthfully, the the Good German, which we mentioned, another kind of like fascinating experiment that doesn't really work. Um, Girlfriend experience that I talked about earlier, like a movie with a lot of interesting ideas, but is maybe like not that pleasurable to watch. Um, I'm curious, what do you think of of his two Che Guevara movies with um, uh, Benicio. Benicio del Toro in them? 
so I've only seen the first one. I need to see the second one, but um, I definitely liked it. It was like just a solid um, take on it, but it's like not what you really go to a Soderbergh movie for, which is why I think it's one of the reasons why. Well, there's many reasons why it's not, not talked about that often. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's the more. I think it's his most successful sort of art house project. Um, I I truthfully, my memory is that like the second one, I don't remember enjoying quite as much as the first one. But you know, as as much as they have this like incredible Benicio del Toro performance at the center of them, they are these like. There also are kind of an experiment. Like, it's him, can I make a, a quote-unquote tradition, what we would think of on paper as a traditional Hollywood biopic mm -hmm. about, like, a famous historical figure, but can I make it w about all the parts that you, like, would normally not see in a biopic? Like, I don't want to use any of the kind of big Wikipedia points that you would normally see. I want to make a movie about all the, as we said earlier, all the, like, process and minutia and the, like, plan you know che guevara like planning uh a, a military assault or just sort of like making coffee with his soldiers out in the jungle and stuff like that's what soderbergh is fascinated with so it's this movie that is kind of like him very intentionally kind of bucking up against the trends of and conventions of a biopic but it also is a movie that kind of like, as as you kind of hinted at, like, I think I saw both of these when I was in high school and kind of stroked my chin, like, interesting. And Benicio Del Toro is great in this. It's like an incredible performance. And I mostly remember like quite liking the first movie, but it, I, I, I don't, I think another reason it's not um, often brought up as like one of people's favorites of his is it is a movie that is kind of like, how can I take out kind of the the sizzle and the kind of like big loud moments of what we would think of of a like sweeping Hollywood biopic, if that makes sense. True. And dealing with a pretty contentious figure, at least in right. uh in our neck of the woods. <laughs> and and it's rare that um well I guess anti Cuban revolution sentiment is kind of uh the majority i feel like in the united states so it is uh and or i appreciate him taking it on giving such a objective take to it and i just am curious it's another example of um his films that were I'm like how i'm so curious how it got made like how it was even produced like who financed it and i'm just so curious if like all these little side projects are just all riding off the back of the oceans films and their success. Well, from what I remember about the Che movie is it was originally a Terrence Malick project. And then like, I guess I think it's like Malick got caught up making the new world or something, something like that. And it kind of like fell apart. And then sort of Soderbergh was like the next person who kind of got the project. So it even is fascinating as something that like was being developed by, a totally different kind of filmmaker who, you know, Soderbergh has this reputation for like working very efficiently and very like quickly. And Malik, I mean, 
kind of similar to Soderbergh. Seems like someone who kind of finds a lot of stuff in the editing. But <laughs> in a very different way. In a very, like, <laughs> elongated, like, I don't know, we'll just shoot a bunch of we'll stuff and then I'll, I'll take, like, yeah, I'll take, like, a, like, three years to kind of, like, fashion something <laughs> together. Um, I, I can't wait till there's a ter- new Terrence Malick movie for uh, us to do a Malick podcast on here because I just find <laughs> that man's process just so fascinating. Um, but I, I, I think kind of after that period, he... He, you know, he pulls back into, in the 2010s, back into, I'm the guy who does, like, mainstream movie star movies. Um, and, you know, he does Magic Mike, as we mentioned. Um, there's the Informant, which I guess is 09. Um, I'm, I'm curious, what, what do you think of that movie? Because that's actually, truthfully, one of my favorite Soderbergh. That's one that, well, because you say that, I want to revisit it. Because it has it's one that didn't stick with me when I watched it. But I, like... I never trust my opinions for movies I watched for the first time in high school. Mm-hmm. So definitely worth a rewatch. But I definitely, this period as a whole, I'm definitely a fan of. Yeah, I I maybe had a similar experience to you of I think the first time I saw it, I was a bit, I think just kind of baffled by it. I don't know that I necessarily disliked it. And then I watched it a second time, probably like four or five years ago. And like really got on the wavelength of it and thought it was like a hysterically funny, like biting satire that that I I think the thing that kind of threw me off the first time I watched it is like the tone of the movie is so much from this like Matt Damon character's point of view of for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's basically Matt Damon is this kind of like white collar criminal who is finds out that the corporation he's working for is maybe doing some nefarious stuff. And so he approach he, he agrees to be an informant for the FBI, but then he also tries like covering his tracks for bad stuff that maybe he's involvement in. And the movie <laughs> keeps like spin and spinning this larger and larger web of lies. But because the whole thing is from Damon's character's perspective, it has this very like, oh shucks kind of like middle american right. tone to it and like the whole soundtrack is this kind of like whistling andy griffith like theme song music and it's it's very like off put like disorienting when you first see it because you're like what i'm sorry what what am i supposed to make of this character and like i can't even like i can't even quite follow is he lying or is he not and like it is you as an audience being just as much sort of deceived by his bs and and this the movie itself is putting on this kind of like faux image of himself that that he is trying to put on to the fbi and so um i i i think it's like a really smart um very very funny movie um but could definitely see how like you're selling would, me on it people would watch it for the first because that's what happened to me like watching it for the first time I was like what i i don't this <laughs> this tone like doesn't make sense. And like, I'm a little confused about the movie and, and seeing it a second time, it like really clicked for me. But um, I mean, the other stuff, this, uh, this era, Hey, why are we mentioned the, the, which is him doing a kind of like born action thriller with Gina Carano um, behind the candle opera, which is his Liberace movie with uh, Michael Douglas and Matt Damon, which I, I feel like kind of signifies his, shift into doing tv kind of the the back half of this decade um because that was a project he kind of like really tried to get developed for years and years and years even with damon and 
Douglas attached and just kept getting shot down across Hollywood because people just didn't see like, I don't know, are people going to really want to go Liberace movie? Is that going to be too gay or something like that? And then that movie, I I remember the summer that movie like premiered on HBO and everyone was like, this movie's really good. Like we would have all gone and seen this. Like, (laughs) And was that his last one before his uh, little break they took? I believe so. Cause I, it's, yeah, because I forget, I think that's the same year as Side Effects, which is one that I remember liking, but I honestly could not remember. I think that's the, like, big pharma kind of conspiracy thriller yep. with, like, Jude Law and Rooney Mara. Mara in it. That, I remember being his, like, the the sort of promotion around that movie was, like, Soderbergh's retiring. He's kind of, like, had these bad experiences getting projects done in the industry, not just behind the candle opera, which eventually would just go to HBO, but also he was like originally trying to get Moneyball off the ground for years and years. And apparently had this very weird, unconventional Moneyball script that sounds closer to something like <laughs> the big short than like the movie we, we actually got um, with people like explaining, you know, baseball statistics to you with like graphs and stuff like that. Yeah, but then it might end up like the laundromat, which we'll get to. I'm sure. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, I think my other favorite of, of this this period is um other than the informant is maybe Contagion, which yeah. Um, I I remember liking in the theater, and then I'm sure like a lot of other people, um, maybe <laughs> it's my best judgment. <laughs> rewatched it during the pandemic yeah, and same. um turns out everything that happens in this movie is something that actually pretty much happened in in real life and that this movie was very dead on about like <laughs> what the the just the the chaos of of living in a global pandemic um and you know is 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 a great like old school ensemble disaster movie at, at the same time yeah i mean i'm a huge fan of this era it's it would be my second favorite behind the one that we just talked about with his like uh heavy hitters right out of the gate and this best picture nominees but like like you said these are all just solid um more mainstream or more mass appealing uh and i i definitely am a fan of all of them i i'm only partially through behind the candelabra because i was trying to get caught up on some ones that i hadn't seen but i probably equally have been enjoying it as much as the other ones uh from this era so yeah i think they're all solid yeah so i after this we he kind of moves into mostly working in tv for several years he you know quote unquote soft retires is like (laughs) you know i'll be the dp for the magic mike movie um and uh you know i'll produce some stuff and there is that uh tv series he basically directed all of uh the nick what are you a fan of the nick see i've never seen the nick because like when he when he retired or when he like whispered, I'm retiring. Yes. But didn't actually retire. Um, I don't know. I guess I just sort of, uh, I wasn't in my TV, like binging days at that point. Mm -hmm. It just didn't line up. So there would have been a time when I probably would have just consumed all of it. But that's one that I, I guess people, uh, are hot on it. So I might have to catch up on it. I think you would really like it. Um, it's, it's only two seasons if I remember um before it got canceled, but it's it's 
it's really good. It's essentially like a medical show that's all set in like New York in the early 1900s. So it's kind of like it's it's a bit of a funny show to reflect on. Not that the show is a comedy, but it is kind of like early days of medicine where like someone walks into the doctor's office and is like, my knee hurts. And the doctor's <laughs> like, hmm. So we're going to open you up and then let's see, I'm going to take your stomach out, put it in upside down. Oh, shoot. We killed him. Oh, all right. I guess that doesn't work. We'll cross that off the list. That doesn't, that's not how you fix a, a, a swollen knee. Um, so that's basically like kind of what the show is. It's like <laughs> a bunch of like really gross, like trying and failing of like yeah, trial hmm, and error. This person has a headache. What if, what if we removed a fourth of their brain? What <laughs> Would that fix yeah, things? All just the agony that people actually had to go through before us, the guinea pigs of history. God bless them. <laughs> yes. Um, and then there's like another show. I haven't seen Mosaic, which is the kind of like choose your own adventure uh, HBO series he did that I, I believe it was to like sync up with like you would also watch it on your tablet so you could like control like what the next scene. It was kind of like what was that like Black Mirror episode the where you like would choose where there was like dozens upon dozens of different like outcomes the show could have or the episode could have based off of like what you were selecting media experimentation yes um so then after that you know his 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 post um retirement phase has kind of even itself been these kind of like three distinct chunks there's kind of like immediately post-retirement he does a couple theatrical movies um logan lucky which is another very fun heist movie uh set in you and i's native uh <laughs> north carolina there um where channing tatum and adam driver and riley keogh and daniel craig all try and rob the the is it the coca-cola 600 it's I'm, some race it's yeah, one we're, we're of the nascar so, i'm southern but not too proud of it right 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 um a movie i remember like walking out of the theater and be like everyone in america is gonna eat that up and that was <laughs> awesome and then no one went and saw it um and unsane which is the like iphone shot uh like insane asylum thriller with Claire Foy, both movies that were massive bombs. I think at the box office, I think were more of him kind of experimenting with the release strategy. Cause I believe his own production company tried to sort of release and distribute those movies um, without going through normal studio channels. Um, I'm I'm curious what do you uh, what do you kind of think of of those cuz after this I would say like Magic Mike's Last Dance is really the first theatrical movie he's had since yeah. Unsane and in that in between that time he's been doing streaming movies he did two movies for Netflix um High Flying Bird which I really love and I think is is a is a fascinating kind of meta text into his process um The Laundromat which you and I are <laughs> not particularly a fan of and does it have fans i've met a couple people who stick up for it but i i would not say i i particularly enjoyed this movie which kind of felt like him trying to make trying to do a like adam mckay big short style so how people feel about don't look up and i guess maybe triangle of sadness like the people who hate those movies uh-huh. that's my hatred towards the laundromat <laughs> but i still love soderbergh and always will <laughs> um and then you know he's had this kind of like four picture deal with warner brothers and hbo max um that gave us 
let them all talk, which um, I thought was was fine. Um, no sudden move. Another heist movie that I thought was. I mean, all of these movies I, I that he's done with sort of Warner Brothers and HBO Max, I I think have all been kind of like fine, like yeah. like like Ooh. solid. Let them all talk. Kind of like <laughs> fun comedy on the high seas with Meryl Streep. No sudden move. Pretty like solid star driven heist movie. Kimmy, a like Paranoia. another like yeah. s- solid kind of like Hitchcockian rear window thriller. Um, I think it's interesting that like Magic Mike's Last Dance, the one thing I forgot to bring up is it was originally intended to be like an HBO Max movie. And I guess like tested so well that then Warner Brothers was like, no, we want to give this a full on theatrical release. And I think maybe unfortunately is as I was watching it, it, you know, Soderbergh's style has become like a little minimalist in, in, in sort of late years, but this really to me kind of like felt like a TV movie that I was just sort of watching and projected on a, on a big screen. There's a certain kind of like smallness and sparseness to it that this sort of felt like the, like, as I said, the kind of TV movie sequel to this, this <laughs> yeah, series. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm what I'm curious what you think of kind of like the, this sort of post-retirement kind of streaming era that he's had. Yeah. So Honestly, I think Logan Lucky is his turning point for me to where I start to get just sort of lukewarm to, in certain cases, uh, I guess only the laundromat not liking mm-hmm. uh, the films. Um, and I, I guess my my take is it seems like um, he just doesn't have anything to prove anymore. And I feel like when he retired, he got maybe just bored and he's like, yeah, I'll just keep doing it. And he's so good at making movies. Mm-hmm. He is that I think it's just not super hard for him anymore. And so like a ton of these movies uh, by any other director would probably be among their top works, some of them. Um, but I think for him, they just sort of all fall in the middle of the pack and you're sort of just like shuffling them around in that area. But for me, um, he hasn't had any more, home runs since uh oh for a long time but um i think and i don't know if he's ever gonna have another home run for me again but i will always be interested in his movies and i will always want to watch his latest releases i guess if that makes sense so i'm sort of resigned to uh his new era but i think i hope that he'll exceed my expectations yeah, it it seems like this this kind of late period era, which it seems weird to say because you know he's not he's not that old of a person. <laughs> um, he's he for all for all we know still has plenty more years of of making movies ahead of them. But this kind of most recent phase that he's been in, you know, I I'd be curious to talk to him about whether this is is a driving force for him. But it seems like him very consciously being like. There's kind of a middle missing in in American movies right now of like it feels like we have like small art house stuff, giant blockbusters and unless it's like an awards picture, there's no there's nothing in the middle of that and him mm-hmm. very consciously being like, "You know what? I maybe as you said, like I don't really have anything to prove anymore. I really like <laughs> making movies and I just want to make sort of like down the middle crowd pleasing movie star vehicles that are you know stuff like heist movies and thrillers and like screwball comedies 
um, and knows how to do them in a very like cost efficient, cheap way. And if streaming's where that stuff has to go, that's where that stuff has to go. He seems to have no pretension about like this needs to be a theatrical experience, but he it I almost view this sort of late stage of his as this kind of like almost crusade of like I want I want to be the savior of the like the middle movie of the like in the 90s you would just go on like a Friday night be like it's um Sharon Stone and uh <laughs> James Spader in an erotic thriller and you you in tongue kiss right in tongue kiss and you'd walk <laughs> out and you'd be like solid and like, like, and like that, a little hot and bothered that was pretty good yeah i'd be like i i don't know i got my money's worth and you know it wasn't the greatest thing you've ever seen but like you know and that's not saying he is intentionally making okay movies but of like seems to be striving for a kind of um low stakes crowd pleasing like mainstream movie that just sort of doesn't get made anymore because hollywood isn't interested in like that diverse of a portfolio it seems and it is good i just i think and sustainable to be able to make these smaller movies it gives crews big crews things to work on so i mean damn it why should i complain (laughs) they're all like kimmy no sudden move high flying bird i enjoyed all of them so i mean that should be enough, shouldn't it? Yes. Um, well, Jordan, do you have any kind of last uh, Soderbergh thoughts before we kind of wrap wrap up this episode? Um, any thoughts on his his media diary that he puts out every year? I, I like that he does that. It's sort of like an analog letterbox situation, so I definitely yeah. respect it. Um, and like I said, I'm definitely interested in his process and his his interests. And so I'll be fascinated to see what he cooks up next. And I'll always watch it and always uh, come at it with an open mind. So I love the guy. Well, Jordan, thank you uh, again for stopping by this week. Next week on the latest, we are returning once again to the Marvel Cinematic Universe to discuss Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Realm. Mania. Quantum Mania. Quantum <laughs> Leap. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm going to get this title right hopefully by next week. Uh, but stay tuned for that one. <laughs>